0: What? Oh. Thank
1: So glad to see each of your faces uh, this morning. It's a wonder to, to worship in person as well as uh, still a wonder to worship online. Just think about the, the greatness of being able to worship even during this time like 20 years ago, no chance, right? So praise God that um, we're able to worship together, uh, whether here or at home. A couple of announcements uh, this morning. Uh, community groups are starting up, uh, I believe, this week. So please do register on Realm uh, for your community group. Uh, we have a wide variety of groups meeting on a wide variety of days, meeting in a wide variety of uh, formats and methods, and in person and not, and all of that. So please do find one that fits for you and join. It is one of the uh, primary ways in which we as a church minister to others. Um, as well as minister to each other and it's a huge portion of the life of our church so please do uh, join a community group also there'll be two women's bible studies um, beginning the week of september 20th and then uh, also a youth group is back in person uh, so please do note that we're at foxwich park uh, through to the end of october um, as well Uh, and lastly but and very importantly uh, I want to highlight that we have fantastic volunteers that help us with our sound table and counter- counting Um We need more volunteers, uh, so uh, as you can okay. see, we have an active uh, sound uh, crew that is helping us both with the live stream and with our sound, and none of this would be possible without them, so please, when you see them, please thank them for the ministry that they're doing on your behalf, as well as. Um, be prayerful in consideration of whether or not you'd be willing to come alongside them and help them uh, in in that work of uh, the church. But now, uh, also, I think there might be a slide about um, precautions. Is there? No? Okay, fantastic. Well, we're still, uh, precau- we still have all of our precautions, even though there isn't a slide. Please do wear your mask throughout the service, and we'll be dismissing bisection at the end of the service as well. So now, Let's do what we came here to do, which is worship our Lord. So uh, we will be calling ourselves to worship uh, from Psalm 107, verses 28 to 43. We'll be reading responsibly. It's on the uh, screen behind me. I'll be the leader, and you'll be reading the bolded people portion. They're all bolded. Okay. We'll just read people. (laughs) Sorry, they're all bolded. Anyways. He does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we are so grateful and thankful that we get to be in your house this morning. Lord, we ask that uh, the meditations of our heart as well as the praises of our lips would be pleasing to you. Uh, That we would worship you and that we would meet you in this place. That we would hear from your word and that we would be changed. Lord, we are so thankful for your son. Uh, whom we come to worship, and in whom all of our hope lies. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be with us now. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.
0: Please stand if you to join us in worship.
1: And if not we will try working something else out and we'll hopefully work it out Um, and next week we'll just have a new mic so it actually ordered one uh earlier it just didn't come in for today so we'll have a new one for next week hopefully we won't have those uh, issues but let's uh continue on with our worship hopefully the folks on the live stream could hear all of this Nelson's uh, and uh, any family members that are here with them, you are welcome to come down. Um, And as uh, they come on down, um, a few words about what we're doing and what we're not doing. It's been a while since we've had a baptism uh, because we've been away for so long. Um, First, what we're saying is uh, what we're not saying is that only saved uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ, applied to him by the Holy Spirit, and he's saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and so the baptism doesn't save him. But what we are saying is that Jonathan and Jenny are claiming covenant promises on Patrick's behalf. Uh, Remember that the promise is made to believers and their children, and so we are signifying and sealing the fact that Patrick is a member of our covenant community and is entitled to all the outward privileges of the church. And we are saying that we expect him to grow up in the church, to receive the blessings of being brought up in a Christian home, and in time to profess faith in Jesus Christ due to God's own work in him and by his grace. And so uh, baptism is in fact a valuable sign and seal of an inward spiritual reality, and that he is in fact a covenant child. And so, uh, this baptism isn't strictly uh, a Nelson family affair. It's uh, a call to all of us uh, to remember our own baptisms and to repent. Uh, Because baptism is a physical act that reminds us of the fact that we are washed clean by the blood of Jesus who saved us. And so, now I have uh, some questions uh, for you, Jonathan, and Jenny, and then uh, one for all of you, the congregation. And remember that these are solemn vows made uh, between you and the lord uh, and the church as well and the church also is making a solemn vow before the lord uh, to to you Uh, so the church is pledging uh, their support and their help to you so keep that in mind (laughs) so uh first do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of jesus christ and the renewing uh grace of the holy spirit yes do you claim God's covenant promise on her on his behalf, and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do for your own? Yeah. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before her a godly, uh, before him, sorry, a <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Before him, a godly example, and that you will pray with and for him, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Yes. Uh, and to the congregation, do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the nurture, Christian nurture of this child? If so, please raise your hand. And say we do. We do. So let I love Patrick. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I'll get you back to your parents quick. Okay. I a minister and minister of the Lord do now p- baptize you, Patrick Valerian Nelson. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Father, we love Patrick. Lord, we ask that this baptism would be a sign to Patrick and that to all that he is set apart. Lord, we ask that you would grow Patrick in the faith and that he would love you more each day. That you would open his eyes more and more to his sin and to your grace. Lord, we pray that Patrick would be a great example for the faith, someone that people could point to and say, that man reminds us of Jesus. We ask that you would protect him, guide him, and save him. We thank you for bringing Patrick to us. Thank you for blessing the blessing that he is and will be to Jonathan and Jen, and to all of us. Amen. And I've asked one of our ruling elders, Frank Pugh, to come and pray for the family.
2: Well, family, I know what it's all about to have three boys, <laughs> girl too. But well, welcome to the club, and uh, let's pray for this for this family. Father God, thank you for for Jonathan. Thank you for Jenny. Thank you for all the boys. Patrick today, especially. Thank you for this extended family, generations here standing before your people, standing before you before you who have lived out faith, who have communicated faith from generation to generation, and we pray that uh, Jonathan and Jenny would live out their faith and teach their faith and love their son in the faith as uh, to, to raise him up as a boy who would be and a man who would... Know what your word is, would know what your truth is. Who would love you? We uh, pray for the, for Jenny on day to day juggling responsibilities at home. Pray for Jonathan and uh, responsibilities at at work. And we give we give these folks to you. We ask your blessing upon them for the extended family too. For for Deb, we love her. For Jonathan's parents and, and siblings, give them grace that they all might be a blessing to this young boy. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: What a joy it is to have Patrick Valerian in our midst and among. to watch him grow up. um, Coming to hopefully know the Lord and hear uh, his good gospel every day of his life. Uh, Now we are coming to a time of uh, prayer. And there will be a prayer uh, on the screen behind me as we've done uh, for a a number of months now. We're taking our prayer from the uh, book Prayers of the People written by uh, the congregants of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Uh, so we'll be praying uh, together responsibly. I'll be praying, and then you'll be praying, Lord, hear our prayer. And then I'll be praying um, uh, a pastoral prayer, um, and then you guys will respond uh, in unison at the end. So uh, please pray with me, first starting with Psalm 22, verses 3 through 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the broad praises of Israel. And you, our Father, trusted. And you trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. Sovereign God, we pray on behalf of your church throughout the world. For this congregation and for our sister PCA churches in Potomac Presbytery. Fill their pastors with your Holy Spirit and bless their worship services in person and online. Of Cornerstone PCA in California, Maryland, Dr. Walt Nielsen and Reverend um, Ryan Johnson and Reverend Dave Kim. Oh, we would pray for our Harvest Fellowship PCA in Lesby, Maryland and their new pastor, Reverend Barry Knoll. And Centerpoint PCA of Smyrna, Delaware, pastored by our good friend, Reverend Dave Dorris. Lord, Lord, hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, Almighty God, you are our strength and our salvation. Your mercy is boundless and your grace is immeasurable. You give us every good thing your blessings abound. Your peace passes all understanding. Lord, hear our prayer. And yet, Lord, we are restless. The world calls and we follow. Our hearts are too easily led away from you. We feel burdened by our sin and detached. Yet we do not lay our troubles at your feet as you have asked us to. We go to our own way, but time and again that way has proven destructive. We need your grace and mercy. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, our souls are easily weary. Teach us how to find our rest in you and you only. Deliver us from the whiplash of indecision and anxiety and show us your love and truth are the only way. Remind us of your loving kindness and of the sacrifice of your son. Lord, hear our prayer. And Father, we lift up so many things that are going on in our world today. Lord, the fires out west that are destroying so many homes and lives, Lord, Uh, the disease that is ravaging our nation and this world, Uh, all the separation and isolation and all the mental health issues that come with it, and just all the suffering in this world. Lord, we pray for patient endurance, waiting upon the deliverance that you promise of your return. Lord, we ask for grace as we endure um, all of these hardships. Lord, we ask also that the church would be a place uh, that people would come for comfort, for healing, for uh, for care, and Lord, that the church, churches out west, churches around the world, would step up in this time to serve and to show you that uh, throughout this pandemic, throughout the fires, throughout all the suffering, that uh, the world would see and say that the church has cared. partisanship and unrest. Lord, we we ask that you would remind us that you have died uh, for people such as these, for folks that are across the aisle, for folks that look different than us, for folks that think
0: different than us,
1: for folks that disagree with us. And Lord, we ask that that. that reality um, be the unity of our church, that it would cut across all lines and remind us that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we ask that we would see unity within our churches, that we would see unity within the body of Christ. Lord, so many churches are dividing over so many of these different issues. Lord, we ask that uh, your grace would uh, unify churches. And Lord, lastly, we ask that we would see your grace and your gospel all the more clearly. Lord, we don't deserve anything from you but justice, but wrath and destruction. Um, That you have us dead to rights, for Lord, we are sinners. And that we ought not to have any mercy come to us. But Lord, yet you give us mercy. And Lord, we ask that you would... Uh, open our eyes to the wonder of that grace, the wonder of the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, uh, we will pray together these words, O God, all these spoken requests and all of our unspoken requests we present to you in the caring name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. And now we come to a time of confession of sin and assurance of pardon. And uh, we will have a time of private, quiet confession, and then we will pray together the confession of sin that is going to be on the screen uh, behind me. And then we will hear uh, the assurance of pardon from uh, God's word. So let's take a time to privately confess our sins. pray with me. Assurance of pardon from Psalm one thirty verses three and four. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Amen. Now it would normally be a time where we would uh, take our offerings, but because of our uh, COVID precautions, uh, we are taking our offerings in our in offering boxes at the exits. Please don't forget to put your offerings there, or you could give online as well. Um, remember that our giving is part of our worship, and so uh, let us praise the Lord through what we have as we get as we worship Him through our ties and our offerings.
0: Amen. Uh, Pastor Wong,
2: prayed for our, during our time for some of the hardships hardships we're going through, and uh, prayed for unity within our church. And I, it reminded me that we need so much grace in our lives right now with everything going on. But I hope also that the church has a sense of thankfulness in their hearts. Um, so that's what we're going to sing about now. So if you'd rise up, and we're going to praise the Lord with thankfulness in our hearts. My heart is good. My heart is
0: filled
3: pray that you would give us greater understanding of who you are and what you do. Thank you for bringing us to this hard story, this difficult story, this sensitive story, so that we might learn more about you and have our faith renewed and strengthened as a result. Bring us to yourself, for we are sinners who wonder what do we have to do with someone like Rahab. Help us to see your grace in her story. Help us to see our own need of your grace this morning. Help us to know you more through Joshua chapter 2. And so we pray, have mercy on us this morning, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Uh, Yesterday I posted uh, on our Facebook group some advice for parents regarding this passage. So if you are the parents of younger children, you may want to look that up. But uh, it was interesting as they came to this text, I realized Christians love to name their children after biblical characters, especially those of outstanding spiritual strength, beauty, and faithfulness. That's one reason uh, why our children are named David, Rebecca, Sarah, Daniel, and Samuel. Well, clearly, uh, we were working our way through the Old Testament. i let you think about how many people are in the Old Testament. But truth be told, you can go to any church, and you'll find lots of Peters, Pauls, Matthews, Marks, Johns, etc. Among the ladies, there'll be Sarahs, Rachels, Marys, Ruths, Leah's, Lydias, and so forth. But there's one woman's name you generally won't find. Which is strange because she's the only woman in the Bible who is named in the Messiah's genealogy, Matthew 1.5, and is praised for her faith, Hebrews 11.31, and is praised for her works, James 2.25. She also has the most incredible conversion story, being saved from a totally pagan community and a completely immoral life. And she performed some of the bravest actions in the Bible. And she raised one of the godliest men in Israel's history, a man named Boaz. So what's her name? Rahab. Possibly the most commended woman in the Bible. But few people, if any, want to name a daughter after her. How come? Well, the name is fine. But there's an issue with the occupation usually attached to the name. If you go through the Bible, there's certain occupations we associate with certain biblical characters. To say a particular name immediately brings a certain occupation to mind. David was a shepherd. Nehemiah was a cupbearer, Isaiah was a prophet, Peter was a fisherman, Esther was a queen, Matthew was a tax collector, Paul was a tent maker. Lydia was a seller of purple. But say the name Rahab, mention her name, and immediately one occupation, and only one, comes to mind. Rahab was a prostitute. She traded herself for money in what has sometimes been called the world's oldest profession. Whether it is or not, prostitution's been with us for thousands of years. There's no city of any size anywhere in the world where there are all women and now some men who will sell themselves for money. And the Bible makes no bones about Rahab's occupation and makes no attempt to cover it up. The first time we meet her in Joshua, Joshua 2 verse 1, She's called a prostitute whose name was Rahab. She's called Rahab the prostitute twice in Joshua 6, and if that isn't enough, twice in the New Testament. Her occupation is mentioned in Hebrews eleven thirty-one. 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And then in James 2, 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So that's five times in the Bible, if you think about it, one probably would have been enough. But it seems that God wants us to think prostitute when we think of Rahab. And that's a little hard to understand. The biblical record doesn't give us many details about Rahab. We know that she lived in Jericho near the city wall. She was evidently well known to the men of the city because the two spies had no trouble finding her house and the king of Jericho knew who she was and where she lived. But there's a lot of things we don't know about her. We don't know how or why she became a prostitute. We don't know her family background. We don't know her religion except that she wasn't raised to believe in the God of the Bible. And we don't know if she was hungering for a better life when the two spies came to her home. All of that makes the following fact even more startling. The Bible mentions Rahab the prostitute as a hero of the faith. She makes the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. If you think of that list, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and then suddenly Rahab go to the end of the next verse you'll find david samuel and the prophets that means right half the prostitutes in some pretty good company she's right up there with the man who built the ark noah the father of faith abraham the man who led god's people out of egypt moses the greatest king of israel david she's up there with isaiah jeremiah daniel and the rest of the old testament prophets If Israel had a Mount Rushmore, she'd be on it. So what does all this tell us? Well, first of all, it tells us faith can be messy at times. Real faith is rarely as neat and clean as we make it out to be on a Sunday morning. Real faith is always mixed with very human imperfections. And if you doubt that, well, look in the mirror. Some days you have faith, and some days you try to have faith, and some days you just muddle through as best you can. How close to perfection are you? And that's the point. Although Rahab is far from perfect, her name shows up in an honorable way in the Bible, which also tells us that messy faith is better than no faith. So let's start there as we think about Rahab. So as I said, this is the second sermon in this new series on misused stories of the Bible. So what gets misused here? Well, there's two things mostly. First, this is an easy story to turn into a morality tale. An immoral woman gets saved and now lives a moral life, go and do likewise. And Rahab merely becomes a good example. Second, we focus on the wrong things. Why did she lie? Is lying ever justified? And what about the scarlet cord? Doesn't it have to represent something? Christian writing on the scarlet thread of redemption goes all the way back to Clement of Rome, who Frank mentioned in our Sunday school class this morning. But as I wrote to you earlier this week, we're told in verse 18 that it was a scarlet cord, and it's easy to make the jump from a red cord to the red blood of Jesus. Dr. Sidney Graydonis, one of the great preaching professors of the last generation, coined the term, Leapfrogging to Gaffa to describe this, which means you take something in this story that sounds similar to something in Jesus' story, and you make up a connection between the two. However, sometimes a rope is just a rope. In reality, this is a story about two spies, an undeserving woman, the God who connects them, and how both the spies and the woman respond in faith. So what can we learn from this story? Turn with me to the book of Joshua. Again, it comes early in the Old Testament, right after Deuteronomy, and today we're looking at chapter 2, starting with Rahab's faith in action. Rahab's faith in action, verses 1 through 7. Now the background to the story is that Moses has led the people of Israel to the edge of the Promised Land whereupon he hands off the baton of leadership to Joshua, and he died. And so Joshua is now the leader, and he goes before the Lord and asks him what to do. And the Lord tells him to cross the River Jordan and enter the land. So Joshua decides to first scout out the land, and he sends in two spies, starting at verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim, that's how you pronounce that word, as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I do not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax." that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So here Rahab's story is intertwined with the story of Joshua sending two spies to Jericho. Just as Moses had sent 12 spies to report on the land all the way back in Numbers 13. It's interesting that Joshua now only sends two spies. 38 years earlier, when Moses dispatched the 12 spies, remember, only two of them returned with a faithful report that God would give the land to the people. And one of them was Joshua. So now Joshua, perhaps symbolically, only chooses two men from whom he expects a believing report rather than an unbelieving one. Now, it may seem like sending spies in first reveals a lack of trust on Joshua's part, like he's testing God's promises. But the Bible doesn't actually comment on that either way. So the spies go in and enter the house of a prostitute. The Bible doesn't make a comment about that choice either. It only says the spies went and stayed there. End of discussion. It could be emphasize could be, the choice was a good strategy. They went to a place where lots of men went, a place where two strangers wouldn't look suspicious. Perhaps we should give them the benefit of the doubt. However, these guys aren't the best spies in the world. I mean, right after we learn that they stay at Rahab's house, we read in verse two, and it was called to the king of Jericho. Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So much for staying under the radar, which is something you think spies are supposed to do. And the king's messengers go to Rahab, and so she tells them, verses 4 and 5, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed to dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, and you will overtake them and she hid the spies on her roof. Well, first off, clearly Rahab has no great value on honesty. Her denial of knowing about the spies and deliberately misleading the pursuers seem both fluent and without any issues of conscience. She is, after all, a pagan. Not surprisingly, these verses have raised a considerable ethical debate about when is it right to lie. Many have compared these lies to the military practice of deception in wartime, where you try to make the enemy think you're doing this when you're really going to do that. Or about the righteous Gentiles who lied about hiding Jews from the Nazis during World War II. However, in this text, her lies are neither condemned, nor are they commended, The story doesn't teach that lying is justifiable, or that the end justifies the means. Rather, Rahab seems to have been trapped in a moral dilemma in which either option would involve sin. Either she disclosed the spies and almost certainly brought about their execution, or she denied uh, that she knew where they were, which is completely untrue. A lie, technically, is a distortion or denial of the truth with the intention to deceive, and that's clearly what Rahab did. It seems to have come naturally. Since just like us, she is a fallen human being living in the fallen world. Something we need to remember before we get too eager to point the finger. She has to choose the lesser of two evils, and as far as she was concerned, that meant lying to save the spies' lives. It may have been motivated by a growing spiritual awareness, as the next few verses will show, but it doesn't excuse her sin. All false witness calls out the judgment of God, who is the truth. So we can't say that God saved her because she saved the spies. As James 2.25 points out, that high-risk strategy constituted the works that demonstrated the reality of her faith, but it was her faith That saved her and her family. And then you're forced to ask the question did God need Rahab to lie to protect the lives of Joshua's men? Had she told the truth, God could have well worked in other ways to deliver the spies. As the rest of the Bible frequently illustrates, God has the total ability to confuse and redirect those who are trying to interfere with his purposes. But, and this is only speculation. Raham's just being herself. Lying comes naturally to her as it does to every sinner, as it does to all of us. No one would have imagined that she would become the object of God's saving grace. But her story is wonderful evidence that no one's beyond the reach of divine mercy. So believing Rahab's lie, the king sends the soldiers on this fruitless chase in the surrounding countryside. Meanwhile, Rahab gives this powerful statement of her faith to the two spies who are still hiding in her house. And so we see Rahab's faith in words. First we had her faith in action. Now we have her faith in words, starting in verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, (coughs) he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said, you are our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So now we've come to the heart of the story and the real main point of the passage. Now, when I teach preaching at Reformed Theological Seminary, I make my students repeat sort of this silly mantra that Frank probably remembers. We do an exercise, find the main point of the passage uh, every class, and then we say all together, the meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon. And we say it every week, and they find it really annoying. So now I'm gonna really annoy you. So let's say it together. The meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon. Okay, that's a cardinal truth for preaching. Yeah. So for a proper understanding of this Rahab story, we have to pay careful attention to how it's put together. And I've shared this before, but a common literary technique in the Hebrew language is called a chiasm.
0: And unlike Greek and English, This means that the
3: main point of the text often comes in the middle, rather than at the end. And that's true for Joshua 2. So take a look with me at the following slide. There we go. So this is the structure of Joshua 2. And you can see, and that's supposed to be set apart, but this is, sending by Joshua, and return to Joshua. Those are the A's. And then arrival, protection of the spies, and escape, concern, protection of Rahab. And in the middle is a profession of faith. And so with this structure in front of us, let's focus on the major teaching of this chapter. And this structure helps us to see that, first of all, The story underscores the profession of God's sovereignty. You can think of this structure as a sandwich. Okay? Mm -hmm. So you have the A sections, that's the bread, and then the B sections, that's the lettuce and tomato, and then the C section here in the middle represents the double meat. obviously the meat is the most important and the most expensive part of the sandwich. The lettuce and tomato is extra and the bread is there just to keep the miracle whip from getting all over your hands. (laughs) So in this way, the writer seems to tell us that verses 8 through 14 is the most important part of the story. Well, what, does that mean just because that's in the middle that the writer thinks it's more crucial? Can we find other clues? Yes, we can. Know how the writer creates suspense at the end of verse 7. It says, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. And so you get this sort of mild anxiety attack. How are the spies going to get out if the gates have been shut? And the writer doesn't answer the question or bring any relief until verse 15. And in between verses 8 through 14, in the very center of the story, he places Rahab's profession of faith. It's an important mark of the writer's style. It's as if he's telling you, don't worry about how the spies are going to escape. There's something far more important that I want to tell you about. It's the writer's way of indicating that what Rahab is about to say is so important that all the other matters have to be placed on the back burner. It's a marvelous summary, by the way, for teaching the components of genuine faith. So let's look at her profession of faith. And you can take that hour and go back to the other scriptures. It comes to us in three parts. And first, we have her communicating the might of the Lord. The might of the Lord the content of her profession justifies its central place in the story. And she rehearses the might of the Lord, verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. Rahab is an Amorite. Who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Agum, you devoted to destruction. That's the basis of her faith. She's heard about the mighty acts of God. It's a normal way of coming to faith. Biblical faith is based on at least some knowledge, some data, some evidence. Think about it, even couples who fall in love uh, don't come to love each other merely by ooing and eye. Rather, they talk, they communicate, they find out about each other their past, their likes, their dislikes, their character, and so on. Every romance has some basis in knowledge. And so it is with faith. Faith is not a warm, cozy feeling about God. Faith grows, if at all, out of hearing what God has done for his people. Second, and Rahab professes her conviction in the majesty of the Lord. Verse 11, she professes the majesty of the Lord. She says there, verse 11, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's a conviction that comes from faith. This is the conclusion that Israel is supposed to reach about God. We find it back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And it says, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. But here is a Gentile, pagan, prostitute with an Israelite confession on her lips. She holds to the supremacy of God. She seems to know he's the only God functioning in heaven and on earth. And all of that leads Rahab to seek the mercy of the Lord. Verses 12 and 13. She says, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So here's the evidence of faith. Genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God, but presses on to take refuge in God. So Rahab must not only know the clear truth about God, but she also must escape the coming wrath of God. It's not just a matter of correct belief, but it's also recognizing desperate need. And saving faith is always like that. It never stops with brooding over the nature or activity of God, but always runs to take refuge under his wings. And amazingly, Rahab not only trembles before the terror of the Lord, but also senses there might be mercy in this God. And what but the touch of the Lord's hand could have created such faith in the heart of this Gentile pagan prostitute. It's a story of great, Mercy. I mean Rahab has nothing going for her, humanly speaking. But in the divine view of things, God has been working in her heart, leading her to true faith, and now he sends her messengers. Technically they're sent as spies. We have no record of them doing any spying. They come and confirm her faith and physically save her. It's interesting. The first character in this great book of Joshua, other than Joshua himself, is this woman, and the first real story is her story. And another way of saying that is, the first story in Joshua is a story of God's mercy, rather than of God's wrath. Now, Joshua is a book of conquest, taking the land. And the premise for the particularly destructive nature of this conquest is, is the sin of the Amorites, who, by the way, live in Jericho. And that sin had reached its full measure. That is, the people are ripe for judgment. And yet, even in this book of harsh judgment, the very first story is about the salvation of a Gentile pagan prostitute. The great apologist for the Christian faith, Dr. Francis Schaefer, whether it is fitting that god should save such a person and he answers quite uh, correctly that it is most fitting because when it comes to standing before the cross rahab's no worse than we are and yet god saves her because it's not the righteous but sinners whom god redeems now at the beginning i told you this is a story about two spies an undeserving woman and the God who connects them. And I both the spies and the woman respond in faith. And they respond in faith because they have faith in God's promise. Starting in verse 15, faith in God's promise. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Remember, she had told them that they went to the Jordan. They went to the river, not the mountains. So she sent the pursuers in a different direction than she sent in the spies. Verse 17, the men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window, Through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our heads. But if you tell this business of ours, Then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So when the spies now away from Jericho, the rest of the story can be told quickly. As Rahab is directed, the spies go to the hill country for three days, waiting for the pursuers to return from the river valley to Jericho. And this... Then finally, once they come back, the spies head back down to the Jordan Valley, cross the river, and come to Joshua, where they told them all that had happened to them. The language is probably deliberate. It's not what they've done, but what has happened to them. So when they report the certainty of the Lord's promise being fulfilled to give them the land, it's not because of their successful espionage or even their careful gathering of information. It's because God's at work in someone completely unexpected and through her has confirmed his promise to them. Indeed, their report is derived directly from Rahab's profession. The Lord is known in the Bible as the God who promises But promises are only meaningful when they're fulfilled or when evidence is given they're being fulfilled. It's important to note that Rahab and her family were saved by faith in the God of Israel and not by faith in the rope hanging out the window. The fact that she hung the rope from the window is proof that she had faith just as the blood of the slain lamb put on the doorposts in Egypt proved that the Hebrew people believed God's word. Faith in the living God means salvation, and Rahab had faith in the Lord and in the covenant promises he made to his servants, and she proved her faith by hanging the scarlet rope from the window. And when the Jews captured Jericho, they used the rope to find Rahab and her family and rescued them all from judgment. And you'll find that in Joshua 6. Now God clearly delights in this story in providing such evidence of faith in the life of Rahab. Perhaps we'll discover evidence of a new life in Christ, an encouragement to faithfulness, as we see the ways uh, in which God is fulfilling His promises to us in Christ. And sometimes he fulfills those promises in people and places where we least expect it. Including those who in his purposes we may never consider or would otherwise exclude. Now one of the tenderest, if not the most tender story in the New Testament is that of Jesus encounter with a woman taken in the act of adultery. It's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We're never given this woman's name. But if we're following the storyline of the Bible, we might call her the next Rahab. She's brought to Jesus for stoning, because that was the law of the day. But it was really a test for Jesus. The accusing men who brought the woman put Jesus in a no-win situation, which is their real purpose. They don't really care what happens to this woman. If he chose to show mercy on the woman and let her go, he'd be disobeying the Jewish law. If he condemned her, he'd be going against everything that he had taught about forgiveness and compassion. And so the accusers think they have him and they make their charge, and they're not prepared for his response. And I'm sure they were speechless and by Jesus' offer, John 8, verse 7. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then Jesus does this very strange thing. Without saying another word, he bends over, and starts writing in the sand. We're never told what he wrote. We wonder, was he allowing them some relief in order they might examine their own consciences? Did he write something that probed more deeply, maybe burned more searingly upon their callous hearts? One commentator suggests maybe he wrote the names of their girlfriends. We have no idea what he wrote. We're not told. We can only wonder and use our imagination. But one suggestion that I liked, one pastor suggested Jesus might have written a question in the sand. A simple question. And he thought that the question might have been, how would you feel if this was your sister? That's a powerful question, isn't it? What difference would it make if the accused was a sister? Jesus saw her as a sister, and you know what he did, whatever he wrote in the sand, and again, we can only guess at that. But when he rose and looked around, there's no one left to condemn the woman, and Jesus announces his forgiveness and calls her to a new life. And that's Jesus. Merciful, tender, seeking the best and calling it forth from a person, coming seeking to save the lost that's who jesus was and is and always will be and it's keeping with everything the son of god came to earth to be and to do and the magnificence of the gospel is that we're all wretched sinners and are saved by god's amazing grace In sending christ he sent a rescue party to redeem you from sin and judgment and he's not ashamed to be called your god You, because of the great love with which he loves you, are a trophy of his glorious grace. God has been working out his purposes in and through his chosen people throughout history. And he chooses unlikely heroes, miserable failures, and those lost in the depths of their sin. God called the nation of hard-hearted slaves out of Egypt, and winnowed out the unbelievers through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And in Joshua 2, they stand at the brink of entering the promised land. But first, in his great mercy, he will save Rahab the prostitute, a God-fearing woman. And he was not ashamed to be called her God. He wipes away her shame with his amazing grace How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And perhaps someday we'll stand with her in that heavenly city. Maybe we'll sing these words Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And it's time to thank him for that grace. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at the grace you showed to Rahab. She seems to us to be so undeserving, and yet you drew her to yourself in an act of amazing grace. We're not nearly so amazed at the grace you've shown us. It's because we think, no, we know that we're way better than Rahab. But your word makes clear that's not the case. We're fully capable of falling into sin just as much as she. And yet here you are again, showing grace to the undeserving, to us. Lord, thank you that no one is beyond your grace. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins, all of our sins, as we respond to you in faith and repentance. So we make this faith and repentance part of our everyday lives. For we pray in the name of your Son, our Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.
0: Would you please stand and join us in closing song?